Okay, we are ready to go. It's time to go. So we will open in prayer this morning and uh, ask the Lord to bless our time um, as we look into this subject of baptism once again. So let's pray. Our Father, we pause before you now and uh, want to quiet our hearts and direct our hearts and minds to what your word says and to the subject of baptism. We pray, Father, that what we cover this morning would be ultimately profitable, enabling us to understand what your word teaches. And um, Lord, I pray that anything that I say that might not be in accordance with your word would not take root, but those things that are, that they would. And so, Father, please be with us. Please help us. Uh, may your spirit be our teacher. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> this morning is probably going to be one of the more controversial, shall we say, of the lessons that I cover. Because uh, at a certain point, I'll be differing with some very eminent divines prominent theologians. I don't know where that expression, eminent divine, comes from. Do you, Pastor Mark? No, but it's a good one. Okay, so. <clears throat> um, but uh, so we are, we are going to uh, continue this discussion of uh, baptism, and we're looking at the foundations of infant baptism examined, part three, and we're still dealing with the subject of the covenants, and as I have indicated before, uh, the covenants are a critical uh, support for the view of infant baptism. And so what we are going to be discussing today is going to be uh, along those lines as well. Now, just by way of uh, review, I've told you what John Murray says about the support for infant baptism and how we need to use uh, inferences to, to support it. But um, I'm going to give you another quote from another eminent divine, R.C. Sproul, who has uh, said this, just to let you know that John Murray's not the only one. R.C. Sproul debated John MacArthur on the subject of baptism, and this is what, <clears throat> and John MacArthur spoke first, and uh, this is what R.C. Sproul says when it was his turn. He says, one of the things that John has made absolutely clear in his excellent presentation today is that there's nowhere in the New Testament that explicitly commands the baptism of infants or explicitly mentions the baptism of infants. And so he concludes it is simply not in the New Testament. And from an explicit perspective, I agree with him completely. So in the absence of explicit teaching, both sides in the controversy are forced to rely upon inferences drawn from what is explicit in Scripture, and that and that should, by the very virtue of the fact, force us to go the second mile in patience with one another. Now, I do agree with his last comment here uh, that we, we need to go um, the second mile in patience with one another. There are very godly, good people who hold to a different view of baptism than we do, and many of them I have in my library. Um, so... You know, I respect them highly. I respect Dr. Sproul, 
and many others. Doesn't mean that I always agree with them, but I do highly respect them and regard them as brothers. We'll be with them forever and eternity, I believe. And so we do need to be patient with one another. We do need to be respectful with one another. It is not my intention to be disrespectful to any of these uh, brothers with whom we, we differ. Um, and so if it comes across that way, let me know and I'll try to correct myself. But uh, I don't, I, I do want you to notice that he does acknowledge that there, and you don't have to word, use the word explicit in there, you can take it out. I think it's put there for a reason and we won't go into that. But um, we, could, we, we, could, we acknowledge that there's nowhere in the New Testament that commands the baptism of infants or that mentions the baptism of infants. He says that and uh, I agree with that. And so they rely upon inferences. We're going to go to some of those passages that deal with the inferences this morning. I wish I had time to even evaluate that statement, but I don't. So um, remember by way of review that we mentioned Genesis 3.15, which is a passage that is often used to support the doctrine of the covenant of grace. We'll talk about that later. But just a by way of rem reminder, this particular passage is the two-seed conflict passage the word offspring is literally the word seed and the Septuagint sperma, from which we get sperm, seed. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And uh, we said last time that the central focus in this passage is on Christ, who is the seed of the woman, the offspring of the woman. And he is indeed the central figure of all of creation or all of human history. And we mentioned that the succeeding covenants that uh, that we will that are that are discussed in the scriptures, starting with say the covenant of Noah, all the succeeding covenants beyond this statement in Genesis 15, they all tie in with this declaration. It's all about working out the sending of the seed of the woman to crush the heel, to crush the head of the serpent. So they all tie in with this declaration, but there is no mention of a covenant here, is there? See a covenant in there anywhere, even by implication? I don't think so. So just keep that in the back of your mind for later in the lesson. Now I'm not going to take time to go uh, and fill out the, the concept of the Davidic covenant. Um, if you want to, uh, I can give you some of these notes, but just note the last uh, thing that is, uh, whoops, that is here that it is one of the covenants that Paul calls the covenants of promise in Ephesians chapter 2. I believe it is a covenant of promise. We're going to skip that for sake of time. Now what I want to do today is we're going to look at a series of statements. The, the material on this is so vast. There's such a huge amount of material that it's, it's actually it's a challenge to even list all the books that have been written in this area, let alone read them and digest them. So there's a huge amount of material, and I am going to try to summarize it in uh, 40, 45 minutes. And therefore, I'm going to do that by way of just some statements in, in uh, dealing with various topics that relate here. So with regard to baptism and the concept of the covenant of grace. Now, if you have, if you have brought with you your handout, you remember that? the handout that uh, had the little diagram like this on the bottom, okay? Um, you'll notice that the traditional, the Westminster Confession of Faith and other 
uh, sources will give to you the concept of the covenant of grace. And as you see it on your list there, the, com the covenant of grace, according to this, started at the fall at after Adam and Eve fell, and then it extends and it overarches all the other covenants, the historical covenants in the scriptures. So um, that's what we're talking about when we talk about the covenant of grace. It was a covenant God, uh, that, according to uh, many, that God established um, as a way of salvation that overarches all the other covenants and those individual covenants are administrations of this one covenant of grace. They're, all the other historical covenants are ways in which this overarching covenant of grace is worked out in time. So that's what we're talking about when we talk about the covenant of grace. Well, here's my first statement. Infant baptism is grounded in the Paedo-Baptist view that circumcision and baptism are the Old Testament and New Testament signs, respectively, of the covenant of grace. And so, the Old Testament sign of the covenant of grace is circumcision. The New Testament sign of the covenant of grace is baptism. They're both signs of the same covenant. The Paedo-Baptist Pierre Marcel says that nothing can cause the foundation of baptism to be anything other than the covenant of grace or cause baptism to signify and seal anything else in the first place than our adoption and reception into the covenant. With the rejection of the covenant of grace, every possible foundation of infant baptism disappears. So the covenant of grace, according to the Paedo-Baptist, is the foundation for Paedo-Baptism. That means that if infant baptism is built on the covenant of grace, and if the foundation, this concept of the covenant of grace, is cracked and crumbling and falling, then infant baptism falls with it. The Paedo-Baptist Randy Booth, who has some, who's at the top of that diagram that I, we just referred to, we're not going to go through that. You can use that, do that on your own because it supports, it supports what I'm going to pre present here. The Paedo-Baptist, uh, Randy Booth, by the way, who used to be a Baptist, um, says, under the older administration of the covenant of grace, notice reference to the covenant of grace again, circumcision was the sign and seal of covenant administration. <laughs> under the final administration of the covenant of grace, that is the new covenant, water baptism has replaced circumcision as the sign of covenant admission. So we've got overarching covenant of grace. The old covenant, you got into the covenant of grace by circumcision under, under New Testament times. You get into the uh, covenant by means of baptism. And so baptism then replaces circumcision as the sign of the covenant of grace. That's my first, uh, first statement there, is that uh, infant baptism is grounded in the Paedo-Baptist view that circumcision and baptism are the Old Testament and New Testament signs, respectively, of the covenant of grace. Now, what about what, when, he, when we talk about the covenant of grace, what do we mean? Uh, the term covenant of grace refers to a theological concept that in itself is biblical if it means God's plan of salvation. Okay? Now, we're going to find out that they don't aren't consistent with that, but if they, if they simply mean that the covenant of grace is simply God's plan of salvation, 
then okay, we can go along with uh, what they say. For example, the Westminster Confession of Faith says, after the fall, God made a covenant, which is the covenant of grace, in which he, now notice the rest, he freely offers to sinners life and salvation through Jesus Christ, requiring them to have faith in him so that they may be saved. And we can agree with that, yes. Um, God has freely offered to sinners life and salvation through Jesus Christ, requiring them to have faith in him so that they, we can agree with all of that. Now, whether we want to call it the covenant of grace, that's another question. But if they're putting that concept into the term covenant of grace, we have no problem with concept. At least I don't. The Westminster Confession goes on to say, the covenant was differently administered in the time of the law and in the time of the gospel. They're simply saying that things happen differently under the Old Testament, under the, under the law, we have the whole sacrificial system. And now that uh, Christ has come, we don't need the sacrificial system, so it's administered differently. It comes through the work of Christ. And then in paragraph 5 of chapter 7, the Westminster Confession says, Therefore, there are not two covenants of grace, differing in substance, but one in the same covenant under different dispensations. So we have one overarching covenant of grace just being administered in two different ways at different times. So that's the view. That's the meaning of the covenant of grace according to the Paedobaptists. <clears throat> now, the covenant of grace, uh, we need to add this caution, however, if we're going to use that terminology. This caution comes from um, Pastor Sam Waldron's uh, exposition of the 1689 Confession. This is what he says. While it may be admitted that the use of a biblical term, the term covenant, to describe something other than what it describes in the Bible is somewhat confusing, and I agree that it is confusing, it remains true that the phrase, the covenant of grace, does refer to a biblical truth. So he's saying the same thing that I've already said. That truth is the way or scheme of salvation has been one and the same in all ages of the world. And we agree with that, that there's only one way of salvation. It's always been that way ever since the fall. Then he says, if this theological ter terminology is used, however, it must be guarded carefully in two ways. First, the distinction between the divine covenants and the covenant of grace, notice that there has to be a distinction between the divine covenants, that is the historically established covenants that we can read about in the Bible, and the covenant of grace, this distinction must be maintained jealously. And then he says, second, the normative revelation for our understanding of the covenant of grace, if we're going to use that terminology, must remain the new covenant. In other words, the new covenant is the final covenant by which we interpret um, God's work in the world. <clears throat> and so he issues this caution. He does go on to say that it's okay to, to um, you know, use the, the term uh, covenant of grace and to acknowledge there is a covenant of grace. I'm going to differ with him a little bit there, and I'll tell you why later. Okay, so that's statement two. Statement three. There are different, we're talking about the differing, the different and confusing views of the covenant of grace. And um, here's my statement number three. Historically, even among Paedo-Baptists, there has been disagreement as to what the covenant of grace is. And we've been talking at a very high level, but there's been disagreement as to what the covenant of grace 
is. Now, what I'm going to cover right now, I don't want you to try to remember all the details. My goal here is simply to let you see how confusing this doctrine can be. And then we'll talk about why. Louis Burkhoff is well known and very influential systematic theology, which I have used profitably, says that there are three views of the covenant of grace and its parties. And these are, uh, you know, so what is the covenant of grace and who are the parties of the covenant according to uh, his explanation of the various different views? There are at least three different views of the parties of the covenant of grace. The first is the God and man view. Okay, that the parties are God and man. Well, among, in that particular category, there are at least four different views. It is between God and all of mankind in general. Some would say that it is between God and man as a sinner. Others would say that it is between God and the elect. And then others yet will say it is between God and man in Christ. So in this first view, the God and man view, we have four different options. The second view is the Father and Christ view, that who, is the, who are the parties of the covenant of grace? Well, it's the Father and Christ. They have covenanted together. So it's between God the Father as representing the Trinity and Christ then as representing the elect. Well, then there's a third view, and that is that we're not going to talk about just the covenant of grace. There are two different covenants, and so there's the two different covenants view. And so some would hold that there are the, the two covenants, the covenant of redemption and then a covenant of grace after that. So there's three different views, and probably the majority of, uh, of at least some of the older theologians and even maybe some of the newer <coughs> theologians would hold to this particular view that there's two different covenants. So that seems a little bit confusing, though, doesn't it? Well, we're not done. What is it and who are the parties of the covenant? Burkhoff quotes Shedd. He's one of the ones who holds to this third view, along with some of the others like Voss and, and um, uh, Hodge and, and, and others. Um, so Burkhoff quotes Shedd that this distinction between the covenant of redemption and the covenant of grace does not mean that there are two separate and independent covenants. The covenant of grace and redemption are two modes or phases of the one evangelical covenant of mercy. Okay, and I'm not expecting you to remember all this, just get the thrust. So uh, what do we have here? So we've got a covenant of grace, we've got a covenant of redemption, and they're not really separate, they're just different modes or phases of the one covenant of mercy. Was well, the covenant of mercy then a third covenant, or what? Well, Charles Hodge, very well-respected theologian. He, uh, he lived um, 1797 to 1878, and he was called at the time, uh, came, became known as the Pope of Presbyterianism, and he's probably one of the most influential American theologians of the 19th, 19th century. I have his three-volume systematic theology on my, uh, in my bookshelf, and it's very helpful in, in very, very many ways. Well, he says 
that um, he points out that the Westminster Confession of Faith and the Westminster Shorter Chasm present one covenant, the covenant of grace, and that is with God and his people, and they are be, being the parties. But he, goes on, but he goes on to say, and by the way, he memorized the catechisms. Not only did he memorize them in English, he memorized them in Latin, so he knows them. He goes on to say, in the larger catechism, however, the other view is expressly adopted, that the covenant is made with Christ and all the elect as his seed. So even within the Westminster standards, we have, according to Hodge, a, uh, a differing understanding as to who are the parties of the covenant of grace. Now, Hodge then states that this confusion in the Westminster standards is avoided by holding to the two covenant view, the covenant of redemption and the covenant of grace. You think, okay, well, that solves the problem. However, and, and from his, his perspective, he would say that the covenant of redemption is between the Father and the Son, and the um, covenant of grace is between the Trinity and the elect. So that solves the problem, does it? Well, maybe not. Hodge then goes on to say, the gospel, however, is the offer of salvation upon the conditions of the covenant of grace. In this sense, the covenant of grace is formed with all mankind. Are you getting the picture? What is the covenant of grace and who are its parties? It becomes a little bit tricky and, uh, in trying to determine who they are. And I could refer you also to another book that came out, put out by the Reformed Theological Seminary, in which uh, I think there's 26, 28 different authors who, who are writing probably a best defense of, of um, the Westminster Standards uh, today and how there is differing views even today among those theologians. So, confusion regarding the covenant of grace. Here is my observation regarding all this confusion. Reformed Pado-Baptist theologians wrestle with even identifying the covenants and the parties of the covenants because they try to interpret God's predetermined plans within the framework of a historical covenant. They're going back to prior history, or prior to, to history, and trying to take an historical covenant and impose that upon them. Let me say this in another way. <clears throat> impose that upon God's plans, his predetermined plans. They try to impose a historical covenant paradigm back onto God's eternal redemptive purposes, which cannot be reduced to a covenant of grace paradigm. And so we try and then we get this confusion. So what I think has happened is they have created a, quote, covenant of grace as an overarching covenant that spans the whole of human history from the fall on where there is none. Is there God's overarching plan, his overarching redemptive purpose? Yes. But is that an actual covenant established between two parties called the covenant of grace? I question that. Okay, point number four. 
the fundamental problem with this concept of the covenant of grace. Yes, Wesley. Well, it depends on which view you pick. So there are some who would say, well, okay, well, then the covenant was with God and then Christ who represented the elect. Most of them would say that it occurred after the fall. And most, of, and I'm going to point this out in a, in a few moments. They'll, the text that they point to to support the idea of the covenant of grace is Genesis 3.15. But, um, so they, this, is, this is where they come into trouble is that some of them say, well, it's this and it's that, but then some people ask that same sort of question. They say, well, wait a minute, what about this? So, oh, well, then we need to modify it, and it has to be between these two, you know. So is it mankind? Was it mankind that's fallen? You know, so mankind is the elect. Okay, point number four, statement four. There is no exegetical support for the doctrine of the covenant of grace. That's the problem. That, that is what I think is the fundamental problem with the doctrine of the covenant of grace. There is no exegetical support for the doctrine of the covenant of grace. And I think that Pastor Mark agrees with me on this, and Pastor Mark, you can chime in if, you, if I'm covering something that you think I'm overlooking or you disagree with. But um, anyway, so, number one, it's not found in Scripture. It's not found in Scripture. When I was in seminary, uh, one of the professors in Old Testament history and theology asked the question, class of about 40 students. Okay, we know where we can go in the Bible to identify the Abrahamic covenant. We know where we can go to identify the Mosaic covenant, but where do we go to identify the establishment of the covenant of grace? These are 40 students who were weaned on, you know, on the Westminster Confession of Faith and the Heidelberg Catechism and all the Reformed, doc, reformed um, uh, statements in, in, in confessions. And you know what they said? Nothing. They didn't have a place to tell, point them to. There were two Reformed Baptists in that class, me and another guy. But the point is, it's not found in Scripture. Where are you going to go to? The, where do you go to the Bible to find the covenant of grace? And it's not like the term Trinity that people say. Well, we can use the term covenant of grace because. It's just a word to describe God's one plan of salvation throughout all uh, of human history. And uh, just like we use the word Trinity, that's, that's the explanation. But I say, no, wait a minute. It's not like the word Trinity. How many of you ever read the word Trinity in the Bible? It's not there, is it? But we can go to passages of Scripture and exegete them, and we can show that the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God, the Father is God. We can show that there's one God. And so we can come up with the doctrine of Trinity. There's one God in three persons. And we can call that, uh, that um, synthesis of the scriptures the Trinity. And I have no problem with doing that. However, the word covenant is not like that. There are approximately 315 uses of the term covenant in scripture and it is never used to refer to the so-called covenant of grace. And so my problem is this. The Bible does use the word covenant. It doesn't use the word trinity. If the Bible uses the word covenant, let's use the word covenant the way the Bible uses the word covenant. 
and let's not come up with another way and another definition that is not in the scriptures. If the Bible used the word Trinity, we should use the word Trinity the way the Bible uses it and not come up with our own independent definition. Even, even if, even if the, con the, the, the truth were biblical. I've, I've heard, just real quickly, I've heard people do this. They will take the word regeneration or being born again, and they will take the concept of resurrection. Both of them have to do with giving life. And so they will say, okay, resurrection is the giving of life. Regeneration is the giving of life. And so then they take a biblical truth of resurrection, put it into a biblical word, regeneration, and call, re, re, and call re, uh, regeneration, resurrection, and say Jesus was the first born again man. You, I think it's dangerous to take biblical terminology and put in into it even biblical truth, but that the Bible doesn't unite together. And I think then when we take the word, when we use the word covenant, let's use it. And I've looked up every single one of these 315. Uh, if you want me to give you a handout, I'll, I'll give it to you. Um, it was tedious, but, and I can identify with all of them with a particular historical covenant. Never does it ever refer to a, a historical covenant covenant, overarching covenant of grace. No wonder there's confusion and so much variation even among the Baptists. Genesis 3.15 is the only text cited in both the Westminster Confession and even our uh, second uh, London Confession for support of the idea of the covenant of grace. Genesis 3.15, which I believe is where God is pronouncing the curse of the Adamic covenant and he extends that to the serpent, and he's speaking to the serpent, pronouncing a curse on him, saying that, um, that the, you know, the seed of the woman is going to come and uh, crush your head. But I don't believe when he's pronouncing the curse that he's at that time establishing a covenant as is so often presented. So that is statement number four. There is no exegetical support for the doctrine of the covenant of grace. Now we have a room full of people, and I think that probably if we were to combine, out of all of you here, how many times you all have read through the entire Bible? I know I've read through it many, 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 many times. Some passages, hundreds and hundreds, some books, hundreds and hundreds of times. How about you? You all read through the Bible. How many of you have ever read about the covenant of grace? Statement number five. Contextualization of each divine covenant. Statement five is the context of each specific divine covenant determines its meaning, its recipients, and its sign. I don't have time to go into this. This is a big, a big um, topic. Just to say very quickly that circumcision in the Bible was the sign of the Abrahamic covenant. It was not the sign of the covenant of grace. Baptism is the sign of the new covenant is not the sign of the covenant of grace. Each specific covenant has to be dealt with individually in its own context, biblical context. We do that with everything else. Why not with the context, the, the idea of the covenant of grace? Neither circumcision nor baptism are signs of the covenant of grace. Statement number six, 
regarding circumcision, baptism, and the covenant of grace. Baptism does not replace circumcision as the sign of the covenant of grace. Now, when we think about circumcision as a sign, what was it as a sign? Well, I think it was a constant reminder of God's promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 17. God says when he establishes circumcision that my covenant shall be in your flesh. By circumcision, it was a daily reminder that God had entered into a covenant with Abraham. It wasn't a reminder of some other uh, historical covenant. It was a covenant of Abraham that reminded them of daily. It was in their flesh as a reminder of God's promise to Abraham of the seed and of developing a nation, etc., in the land. It was a sign of national identity. Genesis also says there in chapter 15, Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. Who is to be circumcised? Was it just the children of believers? Is that what it says? No, it just says your offspring, whoever they are. Not only that, but if you go out and from a foreign nation, buy you know, somebody to come in to be your your slave or your servant, that guy's got to be circumcised too. He may be an idol worshiper. Has nothing to do with his faith, but he's joining the Israelite nation and therefore he must be circumcised as part of that nation. It was a sign of national identity. And it was not limited to the children of believers. was not limited to the children of believers. There was no indication that the Israelites had to believe in Jehovah in order for them in order for them to have their children baptized. Um, and the, there was no indication that these foreigners who came in had to first um, reject their idols and make a credible profession of faith in Jehovah before they were circumcised. No. All that was required is that you bought them, you brought them into your household, you circumcise them, and he becomes part of the nation. There's no, uh, they're not limited to the children of so-called believers. Um, Now, let's see if I'm going to deal with this right now or not. There were those who were to be circumcised who were not believers, who were not the children of believers. Every male was to be circumcised. Um, by the way, A.A. Hodge, A.A. Hodge is the son of Charles Hodge and became a professor at Princeton Seminary after his father. He assumes that all Israelites profess faith. He says this, all the Israelites, even those only according to the flesh, profess to believe. And so therefore, their children could be baptized, you'd say. Well, wait a minute. How do you know that? I think there's problems with that. How do you know that? How do you know that all of the Israelites professed, had a, made a credible profession of faith? You don't know that. 
Secondly, the history of Israel is one of their continually turning away from Jehovah to idols. All the time, just read First and Second Kings, Chronicles, Judges. Constantly they were turning away from Jehovah, turning to idols, worshiping idols. In fact, Moses, shortly before his death, told the people, circumcise then your heart and stiffen your neck no more. He said, you people are I got stiff necks. You're not, he, he didn't consider them good, solid, credible believers. No, but there would be no question but what they would be allowed to circumcise their children because it wasn't based on the faith of the parents. And indeed, if you want to turn with me to, to Deuteronomy chapter 31 real quickly, Deuteronomy 31, Moses didn't regard them as even believers in true believers in Jehovah. Deuteronomy 31, um, verse 20, and this is the second giving of the law, the renewal of the, the Mosaic Covenant. They're about to enter into the Promised Land, and Moses is giving them their kind of last instructions. He's not going to be able to go with them. And so then he says, for when I bring them into the land, this is the Lord speaking, when I bring them into the land flowing with milk and honey, which I swore to their fathers, that is through Abraham, that they have eaten and are satisfied and become prosperous, then they will turn to other gods and serve them and spurn me and break my covenant. Nevertheless, they would never have a question about whether or not they could circumcise their children, even though this is true. Look down at verse 24. And it came about when Moses, Moses finished writing the words of this law in a book until they were complete, that Moses commanded the Levites who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, saying, take this book of the law and place it beside the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, your God, that it may be a witness there, as is, uh, that it may be, remain there as a witness against you. For I know that your rebellion and your stubbornness, behold, while I am still alive with you today, you have been rebellious against the Lord. How much more than after my death? Assemble to me all the elders and of, your, of your tribes and your officers that I may speak these words in their hearing and call the heavens and earth to witness against them. For I know that after my death, you will act corruptly and turn from your way, which I have commanded you, and evil will befall you in the latter days, for you will die for for you will do that which is evil on the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger with the work of your hands. And that's exactly what happened time and time and time again. As you look, read the history of the Old Testament, they turned away from God. And, but Moses is saying, even today as I'm about to renew the covenant and send you into the promised land, you are rebellious and stubborn people. But nobody would ever have questioned whether or not they could circumcise their kids. It was not limited to children of believing Parents, and yet, that's the limitation that the Pedro Baptists today want to put on it, isn't it? Who gets baptized? Parents and their who are believers in their children. Vic, this is largely a rhetorical question, but if we if we accept the argument of we have this covenant of grace versus Abraham covenant, we with the new covenant. But we accept the argument of covenant of grace, and now uh, baptism is the replacement for circumcision. And this culturally, at the time when baptism is instituted, is still patriarchal. 
society. So in the Pado Baptist mind, what has happened with this new size, it says now it also extends to your female children as well as your male children. Yeah. Well, that, you that's, guys know what I'm saying? It's yeah, like, yeah. And, and that's a real hole in the logic. That's a good question, and I think it is a hole. Um, it's one of the holes. And, uh, and yeah, they, they would just say, well, in the Old Testament, there's a patriarchal situation, and there was a household, and so now we change the sign. The sign can be applied to females, and so therefore, you know, we... Again, exegetically, where, where, where is that? Well, that's... <laughs> you know, that will too. So. I'm sorry, I can't give you that, I, that I, answer, I, I, but, you know, yeah, I understand what you're saying. So... Um, that's a very good question. Um, and then also, circumcision became a reminder of their need to circumcise their hearts because Moses said in, in, in 10, uh, 16 of Deuteronomy, circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be lo no longer stubborn. He didn't regard them as believers. He regarded them as stubborn, rebellious, idol worshipers who were going to turn to idols. And they, but he never, ever, there was never, ever a question whether or not they could baptize their children. So there's some points of failure here. If, even if you accept the baptism replaces circumcision argument, even if you accept that, here's some other inferential, here's some other problems. Circumcision, first of all, circumcision is not this, the Old Testament sign of the covenant of grace. So even if, you, even if you take the baptism replaces circumcision argument, here's a big problem. Circumcision is not the sign of the Old Testament covenant. It is the sign of the Abrahamic covenant. And even if you think that circumcision is the sign of the covenant of grace, then here's a problem. Circumcision is the sign of the covenant of grace, but it was not administered to the infants of one or more believing parents. Is it administered to anybody? Even slaves. But your money. We do that today? Are we going to be consistent? That's even if you think that the circumcision was the sign of the covenant of grace. Even if you think that baptism is the sign of the covenant of grace, even if you think that, and I don't, but if you, do, if you did think, think that, but there would be a problem if baptism is not applied in the same way that circumcision was applied in the Old Testament, but Vic is kind of getting out there. It's going to be applied differently. Baptism is going to be applied differently. So you, you're making the assumption that it's going to be applied exactly the same. Well, maybe not exactly the same, because what about females? So there's another problem. And then fourthly, infants are not members of the New Testament. There's a problem if infants are not members of the New Testament covenant community in the same way they were members of the Old Testament covenant community. So there's, there's, there are a lot of inferential problems there, even if you hold to the baptism replaces circumcision argument. And, but I believe that we've at least done some grounds here for illustrating that this idea of the covenant of grace uh, as a foundation for infant baptism causes infant baptism to crumble. So what if there's no covenant of grace? In my opinion, the theological concept of the covenant of grace is not helpful. And I agree with Stephen Wellham, who is a professor at, um, at uh, Southern Seminary. <clears throat> he says, I, I agree with Stephen Wellham, who says, if we are not careful, however, the notion of the covenant of grace may be misleading because scripture does not speak of only one covenant with different administrations. Rather, scripture speaks of, in terms of a plurality of covenants, 
Remember Ephesians 2 that we looked at earlier and these other passages? It speaks of a plurality of covenants which are all part of the progressive revelation of the one plan, not the one covenant of grace, but the one plan of God that ultimately is fulfilled in the new covenant. And then he goes on to say, in order to make headway in the baptismal divide, that is the difference between uh, you know, various groups, Pedobaptists and Credo-Baptists, in order to make headway in the baptismal divide and think biblically regarding the relationships between the covenants, we should place a moratorium on covenant of grace as a category when speaking of the biblical covenants and the relationships between them. In its place, let us speak of the one plan of God or the eternal purposes of God centered in Jesus Christ, for that is what the language of the covenant of grace is seeking to underscore. And so that is my um, quick, <laughs> very quick um, attempt to show you that the foundational argument, and this is, and the Pedro Baptists will, will agree that the covenant of grace is foundational. The foundational argument for the doctrine of infant baptism is it's weak. It, it, it's just not found in the scriptures. Um, questions, Tom? Uh, in this belief system, for example, do they also believe in the baptism of regeneration? If you confess after you've been baptized as an infant, I don't know how they handle this when you become an adult. And you... Yeah, they would have, we would probably be pretty much in agree with them, agreement with them when it comes to adult baptisms, or they would be in agreement with us. Vice versa. But with regard to baptismal regeneration, um, guys like R.C. Sproul would not hold to baptismal regeneration. They would very clearly not want to say that by means of baptism you're regenerated. That's not really so true or so clear uh, among all paedobaptists. There are some you start reading them, and boy, you, this sure sounds like um, this sure sounds like baptismal regeneration to me. And even those who, on the one hand, out of one side of their mouth, they say, we don't believe in baptismal regeneration, but they will use language that over here, apart from this statement, saying they don't believe in, you read this statement, it's, true. boy, it sure sounds like it. So, but to be as fair as I can with most of the ones that we would, you know, kind of agree with <clears throat> and, and find helpful, they would not hold to baptismal regeneration. They would say it's, it is not tied to it. So, for example, the Anglican Church, which we found that, that many of us know people that go there, would they not believe in, in adult baptism then as far as uh, we would consider that the same type of baptism? Would they hold to infant baptism? Is the only thing you need for the... They don't even consider it adult baptism if you've been baptized as a baby. Yeah, if you've been baptized as a baby, you don't need to be baptized again for sure. And uh, if uh, we're thinking about the same place, yeah, some of the things that they say are very concerning. I don't, it sounds just like you wash away your sins, you wash away original sin in the baptismal font. And uh, so, okay, well, next week what we're going to do, uh, we'll talk more about the, the new covenant and its betterness. 
And to see those passages of scripture there at the bottom, Hebrews 8, Colossians 2, and 1 Corinthians 7, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, different passages. These are passages that even though they say, well, there's no passage in the Bible that teaches infant baptism, but they go to these passages to try to find support for it, try, try to find inferential support. And so we're going to start looking at those passages uh, next week and see, well, do those passages really teach what you're trying to say they teach? Okay.